You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, here to talk to you about uh, everything's awesome, and everything's cool in Oleander, and there's nothing going wrong, and Asan Lupin, the extraordinary adventures of, is continuing to be this month's story. Okay, continue. Nothing to see here. Keep going. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 5. The Queen's Necklace. Two or three times each year, on occasions of unusual importance, such as the balls at the Austrian Embassy or the soirees of Lady Billingston, the Countess de Drusoubise wore upon her white shoulders the Queen's Necklace. It was indeed the famous necklace, the legendary necklace that Beaumère and Bassange, court jewellers, had made for Madame du Barry, the veritable necklace that the Cardinal de Rouen-Soubise intended to give to Marie-Antoinette, Queen of France, and the same that the adventurous Jeanne de Valois, Countess de la Motte, had pulled to pieces one evening in February 1785, with the aid of her husband and their accomplice, Réto de Villette. To tell the truth, the mounting alone was genuine. Retour de Villette had kept it, whilst the Count de la Motte and his wife scattered to the four winds of heaven the beautiful stone so carefully chosen by Beaumère. Later he sold the mounting to Gaston de Drusoubise, nephew and heir of the cardinal, who repurchased the few diamonds that remained in the possession of the English jeweller Jeffreys, supplemented them with other stones of the same size but of much inferior quality, and thus restored the marvellous necklace to the form in which it had come from the hands of Beaumère and Bassange. For nearly a century the house of Dreux-Soubise had prided itself upon the possession of this historic jewel. Although adverse circumstances had greatly reduced their fortune, they preferred to curtail their household expenses rather than part with this relic of royalty. More particularly, the present Count clung to it as a man clings to the home of his ancestors. As a matter of prudence, he had rented a safety deposit box at the Crédit Lyonnais in which to keep it. He went for it himself on the afternoon of the day on which his wife wished to wear it, and he himself carried it back next morning. On this particular evening, at the reception given at the Palais de Castille, the Countess achieved a remarkable success and King Christian, in whose honour the fete was given, commented on her grace and beauty. The thousand facets of the diamond sparkled and shone like flames of fire about her shapely neck and shoulders, and it is safe to say that none but she could have borne the weight of such an ornament with so much ease and grace. This was a double triumph, and the Count de Dreux was highly elated when they returned to their chamber in the old house of the Faubourg Saint-Germain. He was proud of his wife, and quite as proud, perhaps, of the necklace that had conferred added lustre to his noble house for generations. His wife also regarded the necklace with an almost childish vanity, and it was not without regret that she removed it from her shoulders and handed it to her husband, who admired it as passionately as if he had never seen it before. Then, having placed it in its case of red leather, stamped with the cardinal's arms, he passed into an adjoining room which was simply an alcove or cabinet that had been cut off from their chamber and which could be entered only by means of a door at the foot of their bed. 
As he had done on previous occasions, he hid it on a high shelf amongst hat-boxes and piles of linen. He closed the door and retired. Next morning he arose about nine o'clock, intending to go to the Crédit Lyonnais before breakfast. He dressed, drank a cup of coffee, and went to the stables to give his orders. The condition of one of the horses worried him. He caused it to be exercised in his presence. Then he returned to his wife, who had not yet left the chamber. Her maid was dressing her hair. When her husband entered, she asked, "'Are you going out?' "'Yes, as far as the bank.' "'Of course, that is wise.' He entered the cabinet, but after a few seconds, and without any sign of astonishment, he asked, "'Did you take it, my dear?' "'What?' "'No, I have not taken anything.' "'You must have moved it.' "'Not at all. I have not even opened that door.' He appeared at the door, disconcerted, and stammered in a scarcely intelligible voice. Y y y you, "'You haven't. It wasn't you. Then—' She hastened to his assistance and together they made a thorough search, throwing the boxes to the floor and overturning the piles of linen. Then the Count said, quite discouraged, "'It is useless to look any more. I put it here, on this shelf.' "'You must be mistaken.' "'No, no, it was on this shelf. Nowhere else.' They lighted a candle, as the room was quite dark, and then carried out all the linen and other articles that the room contained. And when the room was emptied, they confessed in despair that the famous necklace had disappeared. Without losing time in vain lamentations, the countess notified the commissary of police, M. Valorbe, who came at once and, after hearing their story, inquired of the count, "'Are you sure that no one passed through your chamber during the night?' "'Absolutely sure, as I am a very light sleeper. Besides, the chamber door was bolted, and I remember unbolting it this morning when my wife rang for her maid.' and there is no other entrance to the cabinet. None. No windows? Yes, but it is closed up. I will look at it. Candles were lighted, and M. Valorbe observed at once that the lower half of the window was covered by a large press which was, however, so narrow that it did not touch the casement on either side. On what does this window open? A small inner court. "'And you have a floor above this?' Two, but on a level with the servant's floor "'there is a close grating over the court. "'That is why this room is so dark.' "'When the press was moved, they found that the window was fastened, "'which would not have been the case if anyone had entered that way. "'Unless,' said the Count, "'they went out through our chamber. "'In that case you would have found the door unbolted.' The commissary considered the situation for a moment, then asked the countess, "'Did any of your servants know that you wore the necklace last evening?' "'Certainly. I didn't conceal the fact. But nobody knew that it was hidden in that cabinet.' "'No one?' "'No one. Unless—' "'Be quite sure, madame, as it is a very important point.' She turned to her husband and said, I was thinking of Henriette. Henriette? She didn't know where we kept it. Are you sure? Who is this woman Henriette? asked M. Valorbe. 
a schoolmate who was disowned by her family for marrying beneath her. After her husband's death, I furnished an apartment in this house for her and her son. She is clever with her needle and has done some work for me. What floor is she on? Same as ours, at the end of the corridor. And I think the window of her kitchen opens on this little court, does it not? Yes, just opposite ours. Monsieur Valorbe then asked to see Henriette. They went to her apartment. She was sewing, whilst her son Raoul, about six years old, was sitting beside her, reading. The commissary was surprised to see the wretched apartment that had been provided for the woman. It consisted of one room without a fireplace, and a very small room that served as a kitchen. The commissary proceeded to question her. She appeared to be overwhelmed on learning of the theft. Last evening she had herself dressed the countess and placed the necklace upon her shoulders. "'Good God!' she exclaimed. "'It can't be possible!' "'And you have no idea? Not the least suspicion? Is it possible that the thief may have passed through your room?' She laughed heartily, never supposing that she could be an object of suspicion. <laughs> but I have not left my room. I never go out, and perhaps you have not seen. She opened the kitchen window and said, See, it is at least three meters to the ledge of the opposite window. Who told you that we supposed the theft might have been committed in that way? But the necklace was in the cabinet, wasn't it? How do you know that? Why, I've always known that it was kept there at night. It had been mentioned in my presence. Her face, though still young, bore unmistakable traces of sorrow and resignation, and it now assumed an expression of anxiety as if some danger threatened her. She drew her son toward her. The child took her hand and kissed it affectionately. When they were alone again, the Count said to the commissary, "'I do not suppose you suspect all yet.' I can answer for her. She is honesty itself. I quite agree with you, replied M. Valorbe. At most, I thought there might have been an unconscious complicity, but I confess that even that theory must be abandoned, as it does not help solve the problem now before us. The commissary of police abandoned the investigation, which was now taken up and completed by the examining judge. He questioned the servants, examined the condition of the bolt, experimented with the opening and closing of the cabinet window, and explored the little court from top to bottom. All was in vain. The bolt was intact. The window could not be opened or closed from the outside. The inquiries especially concerned Henriette, for in spite of everything they always turned in her direction. They made a thorough investigation of her past life, and ascertained that during the last three years she had left the house only four times, and her business on those occasions was satisfactorily explained. As a matter of fact, she acted as chambermaid and seamstress to the countess, who treated her with great strictness and even severity. At the end of a week, the examining judge had secured no more definite information than the commissary of police. The judge said, "'Admitting that we know the guilty party, which we do not, we are confronted by the fact that we do not know how the theft was committed,' We are brought face to face with two obstacles, a door and a window, both closed and fastened. It is thus a double mystery. 
How could any one enter, and, moreover, how could any one escape, leaving behind him a bolted door and a fastened window? At the end of four months, the secret opinion of the judge was that the count and countess, being hard-pressed for money, which was their normal condition, had sold the queen's necklace. He closed the investigation. The loss of the famous jewel was a severe blow to the Drusoubis, their credit being no longer propped up by the reserve fund that such a treasure constituted, they found themselves confronted by more exacting creditors and money-lenders. They were obliged to cut down to the quick, to sell or mortgage every article that possessed any commercial value. In brief, it would have been their ruin if two large legacies from some distant relatives had not saved them. Their pride also suffered a downfall, as if they had lost a quartering from their escutcheon. And strange to relate, it was upon her former schoolmate, Henriette, that the countess vented her spleen. Toward her, the countess displayed the most spiteful feelings, and even openly accused her. First, Henriette was relegated to the servants' quarters, and next day discharged. For some time the count and countess passed an uneventful life, they travelled a great deal. Only one incident of record occurred during that period. Some months after the departure of Henriette, the countess was surprised when she received and read the following letter, signed by Henriette. Madame, I do not know how to thank you, for it was you, was it not, who sent me that. It could not have been anyone else. No one but you knows where I live. If I am wrong, excuse me, and accept my sincere thanks for your past favours. What did the letter mean? The present or past favours of the countess consisted principally of injustice and neglect. Why, then, this letter of thanks? When asked for an explanation, Henriette replied that she had received a letter through the mails, enclosing two banknotes of one thousand francs each. The envelope, which she enclosed with her reply, bore the Paris postmark, and was addressed in a handwriting that was obviously disguised. Now whence came those two thousand francs? Who had sent them, and why had they sent them? Henriette received a similar letter and a like sum of money twelve months later, and a third time, and a fourth, and each year for a period of six years, with this difference, that in the fifth and sixth years the sum was doubled. There was another difference, the post-office authorities having seized one of these letters under the pretext that it was not registered, the last two letters were duly sent according to the postal regulations, the first dated from Saint-Germain, the other from Suresnes. The writer signed the first one, Anquity, and the other, Péchard. The addresses that he gave were false. At the end of six years, Henriette died, and the mystery remained unsolved. All these events are known to the public. The case was one of those which excite public interest, and it was a strange coincidence that this necklace, which had caused such a great commotion in France at the close of the 18th century, should create a similar commotion a century later. But what I am about to relate is known only to the parties directly interested, and a few others from whom the Count exacted a promise of secrecy. As it is probable that some day or other that promise will be broken, I have no hesitation in rending the veil, and thus disclosing the key to the mystery, the explanation of the letter published in the morning papers two days ago, an extraordinary letter which increased, if possible, the mists and shadows that enveloped this inscrutable drama. 
five days ago a number of guests were dining with the Count de Drusoubise. There were several ladies present, including his two nieces and his cousin, and the following gentlemen, the president of Essaville, the deputy Beauchat, the chevalier Floriani, whom the Count had known in Sicily, and General Marquis de Rousière, an old club friend. After the repast, coffee was served by the ladies, who gave the gentlemen permission to smoke their cigarettes, provided they would not desert the salon. The conversation was general, and finally one of the guests chanced to speak of celebrated crimes, and that gave the Marquis of Rousière, who delighted to tease the Count, an opportunity to mention the affair of the Queen's necklace, a subject that the Count detested. Each one expressed his own opinion of the affair, and of course their various theories were not only contradictory, but impossible. "'And you, monsieur,' said the countess to the chevalier Floriani, "'what is your opinion?' "'Oh, I... I have no opinion, madame.' All the guests protested, for the chevalier had just related, in an entertaining manner, various adventures in which he had participated with his father, a magistrate at Palermo, and which established his judgment and taste in such manners. "'I confess,' said he, "'I have sometimes succeeded in unravelling mysteries that the cleverest detectives have renounced. Yet I do not claim to be Sherlock Holmes. Moreover, I know very little about the affair of the Queen's necklace.' Everybody now turned to the Count, who was thus obliged, quite unwillingly, to narrate all the circumstances connected with the theft. The Chevalier listened, reflected, asked a few questions, and said, "'It is very strange. At first sight, the problem appears to be a very simple one.' The Count shrugged his shoulders. The others drew closer to the Chevalier, who continued in a dogmatic tone, "'As a general rule, in order to find the author of a crime or a theft, it is necessary to determine how that crime or theft was committed.' or at least how it could have been committed. In the present case, nothing is more simple, because we are face to face not with several theories, but with one positive fact, that is to say, the thief could only enter by the chamber door or the window of the cabinet. Now, a person cannot open a bolted door from the outside, therefore he must have entered through the window. But it was closed and fastened, and we found it fastened afterward, declared the Count. In order to do that, continued Floriani, without heeding the interruption, he had simply to construct a bridge, a plank or a ladder, between the balcony of the kitchen and the ledge of the window, and as the jewel case... But I repeat that the window was fastened, exclaimed the Count impatiently. This time Floriani was obliged to reply. He did so with the greatest tranquillity, as if the objection was the most insignificant affair in the world. I will admit that it was, but is there not a transom in the upper part of the window? How do you know that? In the first place, that was customary in houses of that date, and in the second place, without such a transom, the theft cannot be explained. Yes, there is one, but it was closed, the same as the window. Consequently, we did not pay attention to it. That was a mistake, for if you had examined it, you would have found that it had been opened. But how? I presume that, like all others, it opens by means of a wire with a ring on the lower end. Yes, but I do not see. 
Now, through a hole in the window, a person could, by the aid of some instrument, let us say a poker with a hook at the end, grip the ring, pull down, and open the transom. The Count laughed and said, <laughs> Excellent, excellent! Your scheme is very cleverly constructed. But you overlook one thing, monsieur. There is no hole in the window. There was a hole. Not since we would have seen it. In order to see it, you must look for it, and no one has looked. The hole is there. It must be there, at the side of the window, in the putty, in a vertical direction, of course. The Count arose. He was greatly excited. He paced up and down the room two or three times in a nervous manner. Then, approaching Floriani, he said, "'Nobody has been in that room since. Nothing has been changed.' Very well, monsieur, you can easily satisfy yourself that my explanation is correct. It does not agree with the facts established by the examining judge. You have seen nothing, and yet you contradict all that we have seen and all that we know. Floriani paid no attention to the Count's petulance. He simply smiled and said, Mon Dieu, monsieur, I submit my theory. That is all. If I am mistaken, you can easily prove it. I will do so at once. I confess that your assurance. The Count muttered a few more words, then suddenly rushed to the door and passed out. Not a word was uttered in his absence, and this profound silence gave the situation an air of almost tragic importance. Finally, the Count returned. He was pale and nervous. He said to his friends in a trembling voice, I beg your pardon. The revelations of the Chevalier were. So unexpected, I should never have thought. His wife questioned him eagerly. Speak, what is it? He stammered. The, 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 the hole is there, at the very spot, at the side of the window. He seized the chevalier's arm and said to him in an imperious tone, Now, monsieur, proceed. I admit that you are right so far, but now... That is not all. Go on. Tell us the rest of it. Floriani disengaged his arm gently, and after a moment continued. Well, in my opinion, this is what happened. The thief, knowing that the Countess was going to wear the necklace that evening, had prepared his gangway or bridge during your absence. He watched you through the window and saw you hide the necklace. Afterward, he cut the glass and pulled the ring. Ah, but the distance was so great that it would be impossible for him to reach the window fastening through the transom. Well, then, if he could not open the window by reaching through the transom, he must have crawled through the transom. Impossible. It is too small. No man could crawl through it. Then it was not a man, declared Floriani. What? If the transom is too small to admit a man, it must have been a child. A child? Did you not say that your friend Henriette had a son? Yes, a son named Raoul. Then, in all probability, it was Raoul who committed the theft. What proof have you of that? <laughs> what proof? Plenty of it. For instance... He stopped and reflected for a moment, then continued... For instance, that gangway or bridge. It is improbable that the child could have brought it in from outside the house 
and carried it away again without being observed. You must have used something close at hand. In the little room used by Henriette as a kitchen, were there not some shelves against the wall on which she placed her pans and dishes? Two shelves, to the best of my memory. Are you sure that those shelves are really fastened to the wooden brackets that support them? For if they are not, we could be justified in presuming that the child removed them, fastened them together, and thus formed his bridge. Perhaps also, since there was a stove, we might find the bent poker that he used to open the transom. Without saying a word, the Count left the room, and this time those present did not feel the nervous anxiety they had experienced the first time. They were confident that Floriani was right, and no one was surprised when the Count returned and declared, "'It was the child. Everything proves it. You have seen the shelves and the poker?' "'Yes, the shelves have been unnailed, and the poker is there yet.' But the Countess exclaimed, "'You had better say it was his mother. All yet is the guilty party. She must have compelled her son.' "'No.' declared the chevalier. The mother had nothing to do with it. Nonsense! They occupied the same room. The child could not have done it without the mother's knowledge. True, they lived in the same room, but all this happened in the adjoining room during the night, while the mother was asleep. And the necklace, said the Count, it would have been found amongst the child's things. Pardon me, he had been out. That morning, on which you found him reading, he had just come from school, and perhaps the commissary of police, instead of wasting his time on the innocent mother, would have been better employed in searching the child's desk amongst his school-books. But how do you explain those two thousand francs that Henriette received each year? Are they not evidence of her complicity? If she had been an accomplice, would she have thanked you for that money? Then was she not closely watched? but the child being free could easily go to a neighbouring city negotiate with some dealer and sell him one diamond or two diamonds as he might wish upon condition that the money should be sent from paris and that proceeding could be repeated from year to year an indescribable anxiety oppressed the drusoubis and their guests there was something in the tone and attitude of floriani something more than the chevalier's assurance which from the beginning had so annoyed the Count. There was a touch of irony that seemed rather hostile than sympathetic, but the Count affected to laugh as he said, "'All <laughs> oh, that is very ingenious and interesting, and I congratulate you upon your vivid imagination.' "'No, not at all,' replied Floriani, with the utmost gravity. "'I imagine nothing. I simply describe the events as they must have occurred.' "'But what do you know about them?' "'What you yourself have told me. "'I picture to myself the life of the mother and child down there in the country, "'the illness of the mother, the schemes of and inventions of the child "'to sell the precious stones in order to save his mother's life, "'or at least soothe her dying moments. "'Her illness overcomes her. She dies. "'Years roll on. The child becomes a man. "'And then, and now I will give my imagination a free rein. Let us suppose that the man feels a desire to return to the home of his childhood, that he does so, and that he meets there certain people who suspect and accuse his mother. Do you realize the sorrow and anguish of such an interview in the very house wherein the original drama was played? His words seemed to echo for a few seconds in the ensuing silence, 
and one could read upon the faces of the Count and Countess de Dreux a bewildered effort to comprehend his meaning, and at the same time the fear and anguish of such a comprehension. The Count spoke at last and said, "'Who are you, monsieur?' "'I? The Chevalier Floriani, whom you met at Palermo, and whom you have been gracious enough to invite to your house on several occasions.' "'Then what does this story mean?' "'Oh, nothing at all. It is simply a pastime, so far as I am concerned. I endeavour to depict the pleasure that Henriette's son, if he still lives, would have in telling you that he was the guilty party, and that he did it because his mother was unhappy, as she was on the point of losing the place of a servant by which she lived, and because the child suffered at sight of his mother's sorrow.' He spoke with suppressed emotion, rose partially and inclined toward the countess. There could be no doubt that the Chevalier Floriani was Henriette's son. His attitude and words proclaimed it. Besides, was it not his obvious intention and desire to be recognized as such? The count hesitated. What action would he take against the audacious guest? Ring? Provoke a scandal? Unmask the man who had once robbed him? that was a long time ago, and who would believe that absurd story about the guilty child? No, better far to accept the situation and pretend not to comprehend the true meaning of it. So the Count, turning to Floriani, exclaimed, Your story is very curious, very entertaining. I enjoyed it much. But what do you think has become of this young man, this model son? I hope he has not abandoned the career in which he made such a brilliant debut. Oh, certainly not. After such a debut, to steal the Queen's necklace at six years of age, the celebrated necklace that was coveted by Marie Antoinette. And to steal it, remarked Floriani, falling in with the Count's mood, without costing him the slightest trouble, without anyone thinking to examine the condition of the window, or to observe that the window-sill was too clean, that window-sill which he had wiped in order to efface the marks he had made in the thick dust. We must admit that it was sufficient to turn the head of a boy at that age. It was all so easy. He had simply to desire the thing and reach out his hand to get it. And he reached out his hand. <laughs> Both hands, replied the chevalier, laughing. His companions received a shock. What mystery surrounded the life of the so-called Floriani? How wonderful must have been the life of that adventurer, a thief at six years of age, and who today, in search of excitement, or, at most, to gratify a feeling of resentment, had come to brave his victim in her own house, audaciously, foolishly, and yet with all the grace and delicacy of a courteous guest. He arose and approached the countess to bid her adieu. She recoiled unconsciously. He smiled. "'Oh, madame, you are afraid of me. Did I pursue my role of parlour magician a step too far?' She controlled herself and replied, with her accustomed ease, "'Not at all, monsieur. The legend of that dutiful son interested me very much, and I am pleased to know that my necklace had such a brilliant destiny.' But do you not think that the son of that woman, that Henriette, was the victim of hereditary influence in the choice of his vocation? 
He shuddered, feeling the point, and replied, I am sure of it. And, moreover, his natural tendency to crime must have been very strong, or he would have been discouraged. Why so? Because, as you must know, the majority of the diamonds were false. The only genuine stones were the few purchased from the English jeweller, the others having been sold one by one to meet the cruel necessities of life. It was still the Queen's necklace, monsieur, replied the Countess haughtily, and that is something that he, Henriette's son, could not appreciate. He was able to appreciate, madame, that, whether true or false, the necklace was nothing more than an object of parade, an emblem of senseless pride. The Count made a threatening gesture, but his wife stopped him. Monsieur, she said, if the man to whom you allude has the slightest sense of honour... She stopped, intimidated by Floriani's cool manner. If that man has the slightest sense of honour, he repeated. She felt that she would not gain anything by speaking to him in that manner, and in spite of her anger and indignation, trembling as she was from humiliated pride, she said to him, almost politely, Monsieur, the legend says that Rétaux de Villette, when in possession of the Queen's necklace, did not disfigure the mounting. He understood that the diamonds were simply the ornament, the accessory, and that the mounting was the essential work, the creation of the artist, and he respected it accordingly. Do you think that this man had the same feeling? I have no doubt that the mounting still exists. The child respected it. Well, monsieur, if you should happen to meet him, will you tell him that he unjustly keeps possession of a relic that is the property and pride of a certain family, and that although the stones have been removed, the queen's necklace still belongs to the house of Dreux Soubise? It belongs to us as much as our name or our honour. The chevalier replied simply, I shall tell him, madame. He bowed to her, saluted the count and the other guests, and departed. Four days later, the countess de Dreux found upon the table in her chamber a red leather case bearing the cardinal's arms. She opened it and found the queen's necklace. But as all things must, in the life of a man who strives for unity and logic, converge toward the same goal, and as a little advertising never does any harm, on the following day, the Echo de France published these sensational lines. The Queen's necklace, the famous historical jewellery stolen from the family of Drusoubise, has been recovered by Arsène Lupin, who hastened to restore it to its rightful owner. We cannot too highly commend such a delicate and chivalrous act. End of chapter 5 episode six coming up next and remember rate review subscribe tell your friends about oleander book club and radio free oleander and anything else that we're currently putting out we've also got articulate warbling and my personal project uh, johnny smoothskin the ballad of okay so i love these stories something else i love are the uh, old 70s cartoons from Japan about Lupin the Third? And yeah, that's uh, kind of the reason why I chose these because I got into the stories actually because of 
the uh, manga and anime, and I love the uh, series uh, specials that come out from time to time, and uh, yeah, enough of that. Remember, rate, review, subscribe, check us out on social media at Facebook, Thunder, oh, excuse me, too much Halloween candy that I just, like, found in the studio. Uh, yeah, uh, social media, Facebook group, uh, 11.30 a.m., KZOM. Here we go. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 6. The Seven of Hearts. Part 1. I am frequently asked this question. How did you make the acquaintance of Arsène Lupin? My connection with Arsène Lupin was well known. The details that I gather concerning that mysterious man, the irrefutable facts that I present, the new evidence that I produce, the interpretation that I place on certain acts of which the public has seen only the exterior manifestations without being able to discover the secret reasons or the invisible mechanism, all establish, if not an intimacy, at least amicable relations and regular confidences. But how did I make his acquaintance? Why was I selected to be his historiographer? Why I, and not someone else? The answer is simple. Chance alone presided over my choice. My merit was not considered. It was chance that put me in his way. It was by chance that I was participant in one of his strangest and most mysterious adventures, and by chance that I was an actor in a drama of which he was the marvellous stage director, an obscure and intricate drama, bristling with such thrilling events that I feel a certain embarrassment in undertaking to describe it. The first act takes place during that memorable night of 22 June, of which so much has already been said and for my part, I attribute the anomalous conduct of which I was guilty on that occasion to the unusual frame of mind in which I found myself on my return home. I had dined with some friends at the Cascade restaurant, and the entire evening, whilst we smoked and the orchestra played melancholy waltzes, we talked only of crimes and thefts, and dark and frightful intrigues. That is always a poor overture to a night's sleep." The Saint-Martins went away in an automobile. Jean d'Esprit, that delightful, heedless d'Esprit, who, six months later, was killed in such a tragic manner on the frontier of Morocco, Jean d'Esprit and I returned on foot through the dark, warm night. When we arrived in front of the little house in which I had lived for a year at Neuilly, on the boulevard Maillot, he said to me, "'Are you afraid?' "'What an idea!' But this house is so isolated, no neighbors, vacant lots. Really, I am not a coward, and yet... Well, you are very cheering, I must say. Oh, I say that as I would say anything else. The Saint-Martins have impressed me with their stories of brigands and thieves. We shook hands and said good night. I took out my key and opened the door. Well, that is good, I murmured. Antoine has forgotten to light a candle. Then I recalled the fact that Antoine was away. I had given him a short leave of absence. Forthwith I was disagreeably oppressed by the darkness and silence of the night. I ascended the stairs on tiptoe and reached my room as quickly as possible. Then, contrary to my usual habit, 
I turned the key and pushed the bolt. The light of my candle restored my courage, yet I was careful to take my revolver from its case, a large, powerful weapon, and place it beside my bed. That precaution completed my reassurance. I laid down and, as usual, took a book from my night-table to read myself to sleep. Then I received a great surprise. Instead of the paper-knife with which I had marked my place on the proceeding, I found an envelope, closed with five seals of red wax. I seized it eagerly. It was addressed to me, and marked, Urgent. A letter! A letter addressed to me! Who could have put it in that place? Nervously, I tore open the envelope and read, From the moment you open this letter, whatever happens, whatever you may hear, do not move, do not utter one cry, otherwise you are doomed. I am not a coward, and quite as well as another, I can face real danger, or smile at the visionary perils of imagination. But let me repeat, I was in an anomalous condition of mind, with my nerves set on edge by the events of the evening. Besides, was there not in my present situation something startling and mysterious, calculated to disturb the most courageous spirit? My feverish fingers clutched the sheet of paper, and I read and re-read those threatening words, Do not move, do not utter one cry, otherwise you are doomed. Nonsense, I thought. It is a joke, the work of some cheerful idiot. I was about to laugh, a good loud laugh. Who prevented me? What haunting fear compressed my throat? At least I would not blow out the candle. No, I could not do it. Do not move, or you are doomed, were the words he had written. These auto-suggestions are frequently more imperious than the most positive realities but why should I struggle against them? I had simply to close my eyes. I did so. At that moment I heard a slight noise, followed by crackling sounds, proceeding from a large room used by me as a library. A small room or antechamber was situated between the library and my bedchamber. The approach of an actual danger greatly excited me, and I felt a desire to get up seize my revolver, and rush into the library. I did not rise. I saw one of the curtains of the left window move. There was no doubt about it. The curtain had moved. It was still moving. And I saw... <laughs> I saw quite distinctly, in the narrow space between the curtains and the window, a human form, a bulky mass that prevented the curtains from hanging straight and it is equally certain that the man saw me through the large meshes of the curtain. Then I understood the situation. His mission was to guard me while the others carried away their booty. Should I rise and seize my revolver? Impossible! He was there! At the least movement, at the least cry, I was doomed. Then came a terrific noise that shook the house, this was followed by lighter sounds, two or three together, like those of a hammer that rebounded. At least that was the impression formed in my confused brain. These were mingled with other sounds, thus creating a veritable uproar, which proved that the intruders were not only bold, but felt themselves secure from interruption. They were right. I did not move. 
Was it cowardice? No, rather weakness, a total inability to move any portion of my body, combined with discretion. For why should I struggle? Behind that man there were ten others who would come to his assistance. Should I risk my life to save a few tapestries and bibelots? Throughout the night my torture endured. Insufferable torture, terrible anguish. The noises had stopped, but I was in constant fear of their renewal. And the man, the man who was guarding me, weapon in hand. My fearful eyes remained cast in his direction, and my heart beat, and a profuse perspiration oozed from every pore of my body. Suddenly I experienced an immense relief. A milk-wagon, whose sound was familiar to me, passed along the boulevard, and at the same time I had an impression that the light of a new day was trying to steal through the closed window-blinds. At last daylight penetrated the room. Other vehicles passed along the boulevard, and all the phantoms of the night vanished. Then I put one arm out of the bed, slowly and cautiously. My eyes were fixed upon the curtain, locating the exact spot at which I must fire. I made an exact calculation of the movements I must make. Then, quickly, I seized my revolver and fired. I leapt from my bed with a cry of deliverance and rushed to the window. The bullet had passed through the curtain and the window-glass, but it had not touched the man, for the very good reason that there was none there. Nobody! Thus, during the entire night, I had been hypnotized by a fold of the curtain. And during that time, the malefactors, furiously, with an enthusiasm that nothing could have stopped, I turned the key, opened the door, crossed the antechamber, opened another door, and rushed into the library. But amazement stopped me on the threshold, panting, astounded, more astonished than I had been by the absence of the man. All the things that I supposed had been stolen, furniture, books, pictures, old tapestries, everything, was in its proper place. It was incredible. I could not believe my eyes. Notwithstanding that uproar, those noises of removal, I made a tour, I inspected the walls, I made a mental inventory of all the familiar objects. Nothing was missing. And what was more disconcerting, there was no clue to the intruders, not a sign, not a chair disturbed, not the trace of a footstep. Well, well, I said to myself, pressing my hands on my bewildered head, surely I am not crazy. I heard something. Inch by inch I made a careful examination of the room. It was in vain, unless I could consider this as a discovery. Under a small Persian rug I found a card, an ordinary playing card. It was the Seven of Hearts. It was like any other Seven of Hearts in French playing cards, with this slight but curious exception. The extreme point of each of the seven red spots, or hearts, was pierced by a hole, round and regular as if made with the point of an awl. Nothing more. A card and a letter found in a book. But was that not sufficient to affirm that I had not been the plaything of a dream? Throughout the day I continued my searches in the library. It was a large room, much too large for the requirements of such a house, and the decoration of which attested the bizarre taste of its founder. The floor was a mosaic of multicolored stones, 
formed into large symmetrical designs. The walls were covered with a similar mosaic, arranged in panels, Pompeian allegories, Byzantine compositions, frescoes of the Middle Ages, a Bacchus bestriding a cask, an emperor wearing a gold crown, a flowing beard and holding a sword in his right hand. Quite high, after the style of an artist's studio, there was a large window, the only one in the room. That window being always open at night, it was probable that the men had entered through it by the aid of a ladder. But again there was no evidence. The bottom of the ladder would have left some marks in the soft earth beneath the window, but there were none nor were there any traces of footsteps in any part of the yard. I had no idea of informing the police, because the facts I had before me were so absurd and inconsistent. They would laugh at me. However, as I was then a reporter on the staff of the Gil Blas, I wrote a lengthy account of my adventure, and it was published in the paper on the second day thereafter. The article attracted some attention, but no one took it seriously." They regarded it as a work of fiction rather than a story of real life. The Saint-Martins rallied me. But Daspry, who took an interest in such matters, came to see me, made a study of the affair, but reached no conclusion. A few mornings later the doorbell rang, and Antoine came to inform me that a gentleman desired to see me. He would not give his name. I directed Antoine to show him up. He was a man of about forty years of age, with a very dark complexion, lively features, and whose correct dress, slightly frayed, proclaimed a taste that contrasted strangely with his rather vulgar manners. Without any preamble, he said to me, in a rough voice that confirmed my suspicion as to his social position, "'Monsieur, whilst in a café I picked up a copy of the Gil Blas, and read your article. It interested me very much.' "'Thank you. And here I am. "'Ah, yes, to talk to you. Uh, "'Are all the facts related by you quite correct?' "'Absolutely so. "'Well, in that case, I can perhaps give you some information.' "'Very well. Proceed.' "'No, not yet. First, I must be sure that the facts are exactly as you have related them. "'I've given you my word.' "'What further proof do you want?' "'I must remain alone in this room.' "'I do not understand,' I said with surprise. "'It's an idea that occurred to me when reading your article. "'Certain details established an extraordinary coincidence "'with another case that came under my notice. "'If I am mistaken, I shall say nothing more, "'and the only means of ascertaining the truth "'is by my remaining in the room alone.' What was at the bottom of this proposition? Later I recalled that the man was exceedingly nervous, but at the same time, although somewhat astonished, I found nothing particularly abnormal about the man or the request he had made. Moreover, my curiosity was aroused, so I replied, Very well. How much time do you require? Oh, three minutes, not longer. Three minutes from now I will rejoin you. I left the room and went downstairs. I took out my watch. One minute passed. Two minutes. Why did I feel so depressed? Why did those moments seem so solemn and weird? Two minutes and a half. Two minutes and three quarters. Then I heard a pistol shot. I bounded up the stairs and entered the room. A cry of horror escaped me. 
In the middle of the room, the man was lying on his left side, motionless. Blood was flowing from a wound in his forehead. Near his hand was a revolver, still smoking. But in addition to this frightful spectacle, my attention was attracted by another object. At two feet from the body, upon the floor, I saw a playing card. It was the seven of hearts. I picked it up. The lower extremity of each of the seven spots was pierced with a small round hole. A half hour later, the commissary of police arrived, then the coroner and the chief of the Sûreté, M. Dudouis. I had been careful not to touch the corpse. The preliminary inquiry was very brief and disclosed nothing. There were no papers in the pockets of the deceased, no name upon his clothes, no initial upon his linen, nothing to give any clue to his identity. The room was in the same perfect order as before. The furniture had not been disturbed. Yet this man had not come to my house solely for the purpose of killing himself, or because he considered my place the most convenient one for his suicide. There must have been a motive for his act of despair, and that motive was, no doubt, the result of some new fact ascertained by him during the three minutes he was alone. What was that fact? What had he seen? What frightful secret had been revealed to him? There was no answer to these questions, but at the last moment an incident occurred that appeared to us of considerable importance. As two policemen were raising the body to place it on a stretcher, the left hand thus being disturbed, a crumpled card fell from it. The card bore these words, Georges Andermatt, 37 Rue de Berry. What did that mean? Georges Andermatt was a rich banker in Paris, the founder and president of the metal exchange which had given such an impulse to the metallic industries in France. He lived in princely style, was the possessor of numerous automobiles, coaches, and an expensive racing stable. His social affairs were very select, and Madame Andermatt was noted for her grace and beauty. Can that be the man's name? I asked. The chief of the Sûreté leaned over him. It is not he. Monsieur Andermatt is a thin man and slightly grey. But why this card? Have you a telephone, monsieur? Yes, in the vestibule. Come with me. He looked in the directory and then asked for number 41521. Is Monsieur Andermatt at home? Please tell him that Monsieur Dudouis wished him to come at once to 102 Boulevard Maillot. Very important. Twenty minutes later, M. Andermatt arrived in his automobile. After the circumstances had been explained to him, he was taken in to see the corpse. He displayed considerable emotion and spoke in a low tone and apparently unwillingly. Etienne Varin, he said. You know him? No, or at least, yes, by sight only. His brother... Ah, he is a brother. Yes, Alfred Varin. He came to see me once on some matter of business. I forget what it was. Where does he live? The two brothers live together, Rue de Provence, I think. Do you know any reason why he should commit suicide? None. He held a card in his hand. It was your card, with your address. I do not understand that. It must have been there by some chance that will be disclosed by the investigation. 
a very strange chance, I thought, and I felt that the others entertained the same impression. I discovered the same impression in the papers next day, and amongst all my friends with whom I discussed the affair. Amid the mysteries that enveloped it, after the double discovery of the seven of hearts pierced with seven holes, after the two inscrutable events that had happened in my house, that visiting-card promised to throw some light on the affair. Through it, the truth may be revealed. But contrary to our expectations, M. Andermatt furnished no explanation. He said, "'I have told you all I know. What more can I do?' I am greatly surprised that my card should be found in such a place, and I sincerely hope the point will be cleared up. It was not. The official investigation established that the Varin brothers were of Swiss origin, had led a shifting life under various names, frequenting gambling resorts, associating with a band of foreigners who had been dispersed by the police after a series of robberies in which their participation was established only by their flight. At number 24, Rue de Provence, where the Varin brothers had lived six years before, no one knew what had become of them. I confess that for my part, the case seemed to me so complicated and so mysterious that I did not think the problem would ever be solved, so I concluded to waste no more time upon it. But Jean d'Esprit, whom I frequently met at that period, became more and more interested in it each day. It was he who pointed out to me that item from a foreign newspaper which was reproduced and commented upon by the entire press. It was as follows. The first trial of a new model of submarine boat, which is expected to revolutionize naval warfare, will be given in presence of the former emperor at a place that will be kept secret until the last minute. An indiscretion has revealed its name. It is called the Seven of Hearts seven of hearts that presented a new problem could a connection be established between the name of the submarine and the incidents which we have related but a connection of what nature what had happened here could have no possible relation with the submarine what do you know about it said d'esprit to me the most diverse effects often proceed from the same cause two days later the following foreign news item was received and published it is said that the plans of the new submarine Seven of Hearts were prepared by French engineers, who, having sought in vain the support of their compatriots, subsequently entered into negotiations with the British Admiralty, without success. I do not wish to give undue publicity to certain delicate matters which once provoked considerable excitement. Yet, since all danger of injury therefrom has now come to an end, I must speak of the article that appeared in the Echo de France, which aroused so much comment at that time, and which threw considerable light upon the mystery of the Seven of Hearts. This is the article as it was published over the signature of Salvatore. The Affair of the Seven of Hearts A Corner of the Veil Raised We will be brief. Ten years ago, a young mining engineer, Louis Lacombe, wishing to devote his time and fortune to certain studies, resigned his position he then held, and rented number 102 Boulevard Maillot, a small house that had been recently built and decorated for an Italian count. Through the agency of the Varin brothers of Lausanne, one of whom assisted in the preliminary experiments, and the other acted as financial agent, the young engineer was introduced to Georges Andermatt, the founder of the metal exchange. 
After several interviews, he succeeded in interesting the banker in a submarine boat on which he was working, and it was agreed that as soon as the invention was perfected, M. Andermatt would use his influence with the Minister of Marine to obtain a series of trials under the direction of the government. For two years Louis Lacombe was a frequent visitor at Andermatt's house, and he submitted to the banker the various improvements he made upon his original plans, until one day, being satisfied with the perfection of his work, he asked M. Andermatt to communicate with the Minister of Marine. That day, Louis Lacombe dined at M. Andermatt's house. He left there about half-past eleven at night. He has not been seen since. A perusal of the newspapers of that date will show that the young man's family caused every possible inquiry to be made, but without success. And it was the general opinion that Louis Lacombe, who was known as an original and visionary youth, had quietly left for parts unknown. Let us accept that theory improbable though it may be, and let us consider another question, which is a most important one for our country. What has become of the plans of the submarine? Did Louis Lacombe carry them away? Are they destroyed? After making a thorough investigation, we are able to assert, positively, that the plans are in existence, and are now in the possession of the two brothers Varin. How did they acquire such a possession? That is a question not yet determined, nor do we know why they have not tried to sell them at an earlier date. Did they fear that their title to them would be called in question? If so, they have lost that fear, and we can announce definitely that the plans of Louis Lacombe are now the property of foreign power, and we are in a position to publish the correspondence that passed between the Varin brothers and the representative of that power. The Seven of Hearts, invented by Louis Lacombe, has been actually constructed by our neighbor. Will the invention fulfill the optimistic expectations of those who were concerned in that treacherous act? And a postscript adds, Later, our special correspondent informs us that the preliminary trial of the Seven of Hearts has not been satisfactory. It is quite likely that the plans sold and delivered by the Varin brothers did not include the final document carried by Louis Lacombe to M. Andermatt on the day of his disappearance, a document that was indispensable to a thorough understanding of the invention. It contained a summary of the final conclusions of the inventor, and estimates and figures not contained in the other papers. Without this document, the plans are incomplete. On the other hand, without the plans... The document is worthless. Now is the time to act and recover what belongs to us. It may be a difficult matter, but we rely upon the assistance of M. Andermatt. It will be to his interest to explain his conduct which has hitherto been so strange and inscrutable. He will explain not only why he concealed these facts at the time of the suicide of Etienne Varin, but also why he has never revealed the disappearance of the paper a fact well known to him. He will tell why, during the last six years, he paid spies to watch the movements of the Varin brothers. We expect from him not only words, but acts. And at once, otherwise. The threat was plainly expressed. But of what did it consist? What whip was Salvatore, the anonymous writer of the article, holding over the head of M. Andermatt? An army of reporters attacked the banker, and ten interviewers announced the scornful manner in which they were treated. 
Thereupon, the Echo de France announced its position in these words. Whether M. Andermatt is willing or not, he will be henceforth our collaborator in the work we have undertaken. Daspry and I were dining together on the day on which that announcement appeared. That evening, with the newspapers spread over my table, we discussed the affair and examined it from every point of view with that exasperation that a person feels when walking in the dark and finding himself constantly falling over the same obstacles. Suddenly, without any warning whatsoever, the door opened and a lady entered. Her face was hidden behind a thick veil. I rose at once and approached her. "'Is it you, monsieur, who lives here?' she asked. "'Yes, madame, but I do not understand.' "'The gate was not locked,' she explained. "'But the vestibule door?' She did not reply, and it occurred to me that she had used the servant's entrance. How did she know the way? Then there was a silence that was quite embarrassing. She looked at Daspry, and I was obliged to introduce him. I asked her to be seated and explain the object of her visit. She raised her veil, and I saw that she was a brunette with regular features, and though not handsome, she was attractive, principally on account of her sad, dark eyes. I am Madame Andermatt, she said. Madame Andermatt, I repeated with astonishment. After a brief pause, she continued with a voice and manner that were quite easy and natural. I have come to see you about that affair. You know, I thought I might be able to obtain some information. Mon Dieu, madame, I know nothing but what has already appeared in the papers. But if you will point out in what way I can help you... I do not know. I do not know. Not until then did I suspect that her calm demeanour was assumed, and that some poignant grief was concealed beneath that air of tranquillity. For a moment we were silent and embarrassed. Then Daspry stepped forward and said, "'Will you permit me to ask you a few questions?' "'Yes, yes,' she cried. "'I, I will answer.' "'You will answer, whatever those questions may be?' "'Yes.' "'Did you know Louis Lacombe?' he asked. Yes, through my husband. When did you see him for the last time? The evening he dined with us. At that time was there anything to lead you to believe that you would never see him again? No, but he had spoken of a trip to Russia, in a vague way. Then you expected to see him again? Yes, he was to dine with us two days later. How do you explain his disappearance? I cannot explain it. And Monsieur Andermatt? I do not know. Yet the article published in the Echo de France indicates, yes, that the Varin brothers had something to do with his disappearance. Is that your opinion? Yes. On what do you base your opinion? When he left our house, Louis Lacombe carried a satchel containing all the papers relating to his invention. Two days later, my husband, in a conversation with one of the Varin brothers, learned that the papers were in their possession. And he did not denounce them? No. Why not? Because there was something else in the satchel, something besides the papers of Louis Lacombe. What was it? She hesitated, was on the point of speaking, but finally remained silent. Daspry continued. I presume that is why your husband has kept a close watch over their movements, 
instead of informing the police. He hoped to recover the papers, and at the same time, that compromising article which has enabled the two brothers to hold over him threats of exposure and blackmail. Over him and over me. Oh, over you also. Over me, in particular. She uttered the last words in a hollow voice. Daspry observed it. He paced to and fro for a moment, then turning to her asked, Had you written to Louis Lacombe? Of course, my husband had business with him. Apart from those business letters, had you written to Louis Lacombe other letters? Excuse my insistence, but it is absolutely necessary that I should know the truth. Did you write other letters? Yes, she replied, blushing. And those letters came into the possession of the Varin brothers? Yes. Does Monsieur Andermatt know it? He has not seen them, but Alfred Varin has told him of their existence and threatened to publish them if my husband should take any steps against him. My husband was afraid of a scandal. But he has tried to recover the letters. I think so, but I do not know. You see, after that last interview with Alfred Varin, and after some harsh words between me and my husband, in which he called me to account, we live as strangers. In that case, as you have nothing to lose, what do you fear? I may be indifferent to him now, but I am the woman that he has loved, the one he would still love. Oh, I'm quite sure of that, she murmured in a fervent voice. He would still love me if he had not got hold of those cursed letters. What? Did he succeed? But the two brothers still defied him? Yes, and they boasted of having a secure hiding place. Well? I believe my husband discovered that hiding place. Well? I believe my husband has discovered that hiding place. Ah, where was it? Here. Here? I cried in alarm. Yes, I always had that suspicion. Louis Lacombe was very ingenious and amused himself in his leisure hours by making safes and locks. No doubt the Varin brothers were aware of that fact and utilized one of Lacombe's safes in which to conceal the letters and other things, perhaps. But they did not live here, I said. Before you came, four months ago, the house had been vacant for some time and they may have thought that your presence here would not interfere with them when they wanted to get the papers. But they did not count on my husband, who came here on the night of 22 June, forced the safe, took what he was seeking, and left his card to inform the two brothers that he feared them no more, and that their positions were now reversed. Two days later, after reading the article in the Gil Blas, Etienne Varin came here, remained alone in this room, found the safe empty, and killed himself. After a moment, Daspry said, A very simple theory. Has Monsieur Andermatt spoken to you since then? No. Has his attitude towards you changed in any way? Does he appear more gloomy, more anxious? No, I haven't noticed any change. And yet you think he has secured the letters? Now, in my opinion, he has not got those letters, and it was not he who came here on the night of 22 June. Who was it, then? The mysterious individual who is managing this affair, who holds all the threads in his hands, and whose invisible but far-reaching power we have felt from the beginning. 
It was he and his friends who entered this house on 22 June. It was he who discovered the hiding-place of the papers. It was he who left M. Andermatt's card. It is he who now holds the correspondence and the evidence of the treachery of the Varin brothers. "'Who is he?' I asked impatiently. "'The man who writes the letters to the Echo de France, Salvatore. Have we not convincing evidence of that fact?' Does he not mention in his letters certain details that no one could know, except the man who had thus discovered the secrets of the two brothers? "'Well, then,' stammered Madame Andermatt, in great alarm, "'he, he has my letters also, and it is he who now threatens my husband. Mon Dieu, what am I to do?' "'Write to him,' declared Despri. Confide in him without reserve. Tell him all you know and all you may hereafter learn. Your interest and his interest are the same. He is not working against M. Andermatt, but against Alfred Varin. Help him. How? Has your husband the document that completes the plans of Louis Lacombe? Yes. Tell that to Salvatore, and if possible, procure the document for him. Write to him at once. You risk nothing. The advice was bold, dangerous even at first sight, but Madame Andermatt had no choice. Besides, as Daspry had said, she ran no risk. If the unknown writer were an enemy, that step would not aggravate the situation. If he were a stranger seeking to accomplish a particular purpose, he would attach to those letters only a secondary importance. Whatever might happen, it was the only solution offered to her and she, in her anxiety, was only too glad to act on it. She thanked us effusively, and promised to keep us informed. In fact, two days later, she sent us the following letter that she had received from Salvatore. "'Have not found the letters, but I will get them. Rest easy. I am watching everything. S.' I looked at the letter. It was in the same handwriting as the note I found in my book on the night of 22 June." Esprit was right. Salvatore was indeed the originator of that affair. End of chapter 6, part 1. Ha ha ha! Lupin is such a clever gentleman. Anyway, hey, thank you all for listening so much. So much for listening. Check us out, rate, review, subscribe. Go to pgttcm.com if you want to check out some of our old t shirts. New t shirts coming up soon. Just got to get that stuff done. You know, I haven't had any free time lately. Like, really, really, I've, I've been super busy. Anyway, check out uh, my other project, Johnny Smooth Skin, and also, why not check out Articulate Warbling? Zach and Laura over in uh, Brighton, England, they're, they're, they're doing their best, uh, watching movies, reading books, and uh, telling you what they think about it. All right, thank you so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you later with more Lupin. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio.